Hi, We the People listeners. I'm Jackie McDermott, the show's producer. This week, the Supreme Court continued to hear oral arguments by teleconference, and the National Constitution Center recapped those arguments live on C-SPAN, with advocates on either side of each case. Today, we're sharing the recap from Our Lady of Guadalupe School versus Morrissey Baru. These consolidated cases raise the question of whether two former teachers who taught at Catholic schools fall under the ministerial exception and are unable to sue their employers for alleged employment discrimination. Host Jeffrey Rosen was joined by Sunu P. Shandy, legal director of the National Women's Law Center, and UCLA law professor Eugene Volokh to explain these cases and recap the argument. Here's Jeff to get the conversation started. Welcome, C-SPAN friends, for day four of the National Constitution Center's Supreme Court recap. It has been an extraordinary experiment in public education to convene scholars on all sides of the cases that the Supreme Court is broadcasting live for the first time in its history. And here uh, at the beginning of the second week, we've just heard two remarkably rich cases, and I am thrilled to join you again to understand the best arguments on both sides in the spirit of educating ourselves about the Constitution. I am Jeffrey Rosen, the president of the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia, and we begin all of our National Constitution Center programs by reciting the inspiring Constitution Center creed, which, which prepares us for the learning ahead. So here we go. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis in order to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. And that's just what we're going to try to do today. And thank you for joining to increase your own awareness and understanding of the Constitution. And now it is my great pleasure to bring in our panelists for the Second case that we heard this morning, which was Our Lady of Guadalupe versus Morrissey Baru. And I have the pleasure of introducing them now. Uh, Eugene Volokh joined a brief of professors Doug Laycock and others in support of the petitioner. He is the Gary T. Schwartz Distinguished Professor of Law at the UCLA School of Law, where he teaches the First Amendment. He's the author of important textbooks on the First Amendment and founder and co-author of The Volokh Conspiracy, a leading legal blog. And it is wonderful to have him. And Sanu Chandri joined a brief submitted on behalf of the National Women's Law Center, the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights, and 68 other organizations in support of the respondent. Uh, Sanu Chandri is the legal director of the National Women's Law Center, where she oversees the center's litigation efforts. She helped to create the center's legal network for gender equity. And until August 2017, she served as deputy director for the Civil Rights Division within the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Eugene and Sunu, thank you so much for joining. It's great to be here. Thanks so much for having us. Wow. Well, we have so much to unpack. What a case this was. Eugene, you uh, filed a brief on behalf of the petitioners, so we will begin with you. And I'm going to zip right back up to the first question that Chief Justice Roberts asked of Eric Rasbach, who was the attorney for Our Lady of Guadalupe. Chief Justice Roberts said, you said that the personnel here uh, is a teacher, and as part of their job, they personify church values. Is that enough to trigger the ministerial exception 
in that case. Uh, Eugene, tell us what Chief Justice Roberts was getting at in that question and also how he was pressing the petitioner on the central claim that the test should be whether or not a employee of a church organization performs important religious functions. Oh, sure. So let's just step back a bit. Anti-discrimination law generally applies to a vast range of employers, federal in particular, employers that are more than tiny, let's say, large, medium, even medium, small employers. It would normally apply totally to churches, to synagogues, to mosques, to to whomever else. So then when a uh, um, church uh, says, a Catholic church says, we only hire men as priests, the answer would be, no, that's illegal. You got to hire women as priests. And if the church says no, well, then either you have to fork over all your money to to the plaintiffs or you have to leave the country. Um, So the courts have long recognized that there has to be an exception to anti-discrimination law and perhaps to other kinds of employment law for certain kinds of um, uh, employees uh, of a religious institution, certainly to ministers, but probably other things. Like imagine that there is a, an institution that is staffed by nuns. You might say, well, okay, you have to, you're, it's okay for you to hire nuns and not, and, and not uh, 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 let's say, uh, uh, monks or something along those lines. So there's got to be a zone of these kinds of uh, exceptions. At times it has been talked about as the ministerial exception, uh, but it isn't limited to people who are labeled ministers among other things, because a lot of religious groups don't don't have a label or don't have the label minister and may also not have the the sharp division of labor that that some religious institutions do. Um, So the question here is, what happens to school teachers at religious schools and especially teachers of religion? And I think what what we saw is Chief Justice Roberts and some others resisting the notion that that any employee that somehow personifies the church is exempted from anti-discrimination law, because that could cover a lot of things, could cover the janitor, could cover the secretary. At the same time, I think we saw a lot of justices thinking, look, if somebody really is a teacher of religion, then they don't just personify the church. They speak for the church in conveying its religious doctrine. And that that is a lot closer to the minister or the priest or the rabbi or the imam uh, and uh, 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 than it is to say the janitor or the secretary. That's the line that the court is trying to draw. And I don't think anybody thinks it's a particularly easy line, or at least I don't think most of the justices think it's an easy line. Uh, but uh, uh, but uh, the, the question is where the line is going to be and how it's going to deal with school teachers and religious schools who teach religion. Sunu, uh, several justices led by Justice Ginsburg said this would represent a radical exception to anti-discrimination law if we expanded the so-called ministerial exemption, which the court recognized in a case we heard a lot about called the Hosanna-Tabor case decided in 2012, which said that if you actually, a teacher had been called as a minister, then she wasn't subject to anti-discrimination laws and could be fired. If that were to be expanded to any teacher that performs important religious functions, then nearly anyone who worked in a religious institution might be exempt from anti-discrimination laws. So tell us what the concern you heard from Justice Ginsburg and the other justices who expressed that concern was, and why it was that they preferred to keep the Hosanna-Tabor test more tightly cabined to include people who performed 
leadership or actual ministerial functions. Yes, that's right. Justice Ginsburg, along with Justice Sotomayor and Justice Breyer, were all very, very troubled at the what Justice Ginsburg called the staggering breadth of what's at stake here. I mean, already in Hosanna Tabor, we're going from a spiritual leader to someone who was a commissioned minister, but was also was a religion teacher and had jobs that other lay teachers held. So that was already an expansion, and it's an expansion in an area where there's immunity. And so it's not just even employment discrimination rights that are at stake, but far beyond that. And we know in the lower courts, we've seen um, overtime and equal pay and all of these rights, employment contract rights, religious institutions are using this to basically avoid a whole host of employment law protections. So the immunity is quite broad. When you have that kind of blanket immunity, you have to really carefully cabin who gets to be included in that. And so that is really the question here. And so now we've gone from, and I saw some of the amicus briefs in the Hosanna Tabor case that said, don't worry, this is not going to be all teachers. This is a special teacher because she's a commissioned minister and a teacher. Now we've come all the way down to regular teachers, lay teachers who may teach religion out of a workbook. We also had the very dramatic moment to me where Eric Rosbach said that nurses in hospitals would not have their civil rights protections if they are asked to do prayers along with caring for the sick. And that's where the problem is here. And I think Justice Thomas and Gorsuch want um, the courts to defer to religious institutions. But how can you have an institution say, we think all of our employees are, are, are ministers under this doctrine, maybe in a good faith way because they all personify the faith, or maybe to avoid liability. And for any of those reasons, you here have a whole host of workers denied all of their civil rights protections. So there's so much at stake here in the healthcare industry, for camp counselors, for football coaches. And Justice Kagan gave a whole line of hypotheticals, and there was not really a clear through line to the responses. Those were amazing hypotheticals. I'm just calling them up. She just wanted yes or no answer. A math teacher told us to teach something about Judaism for a 10-minute period. Would that be covered? Probably not. That's de minimis, or it's a, it's a minimal bit of religion. How, you mentioned a math teacher saying the Shema, the Jewish prayer, O Lord, our Israel, the God is one. It takes 20 seconds. Would that count? No, that's de minimis. And uh, she just ran through them all. Eugene, you are one of America's leading experts on the free exercise clause. And I take it from the discussions that the petitioners are arguing that this expanded ministerial exemption is located in the free exercise clause. What is the response to Justice Breyer, who said that the ability to fire or deal with actual uh, people who perform ministerial functions is already covered by the Religious Freedom Restoration Act or by employment laws that let you make bona fide occupational qualifications. But to allow anyone who performs uh, important religious function at a religiously affiliated school to have an exemption from laws that prevent you from firing someone who, if you have cancer and chemotherapy, as Justice Ginsburg poignantly asked in this case, is uh, a radical expansion that would be a dramatic disruption of existing anti-discrimination laws. Well, so I think there are two things going on in your question. Uh, one is, what's the, what's the legal source of this principle? Yes. Is it in the First Amendment, whether it's free exercise clause or establishment clause or both? Or is it, should we leave it just to statutes? Well, um, if you left it just to statutes, then that means if you have a state employment law in a state that doesn't have a Religious Freedom Restoration Act, about 20 states have neither a 
such an act nor a state constitutional similar provision, um, and which doesn't have an exemption for, um, from, say, sex discrimination law for the religious institutions, and most don't, then in that case, in that state, the Catholic Church couldn't function because it, its rights would be subject only to the state statute. Um, and, and maybe it might have a bona fide occupational qualification claim, but that too is a matter of definition under state law. And historically, those claims have, that, that exception has been read very narrowly. So I, I think that's why the court unanimously agreed in Hassan Tabor that, that this is a, a constitutional claim. It's a constitutional right of religious institutions to select based on whatever criteria they see fit there, and that's the question, who? Certainly, at the very least, ministers, probably people like cantors, uh, who sing in, um, uh, in uh, uh, synagogues. I think some of them are ordained rabbis, many are not. Uh, or uh, or uh, mu- uh, religious music directors and the like. And then the question is, to what extent does it extend to, say, religious teachers or to other job categories? So the, so the second question that you raise is, what about situations where uh, it looks like the the religious institution doesn't have a religious doctrine saying we must fire the disabled or you must fire the old or something like that. Uh, so why should it have an exemption even there? And that has to do with concerns about entanglement of government and religion. So Hassana Tabor actually recognized an exemption from disability law in part, and Justice Alito's and Kagan's concurrence made this clear, in part because even though the Lutheran church there said, look, we're not firing her because she was disabled, we're firing her for another reason, um, uh, that deciding what the true reason is of, an, of a religious employer for not uh, uh, hiring or for firing or for whatever else uh, somebody would be too intrusive on the decision-making of the religious institution. We do it all the time for secular employers, but how do we decide that? We'll say, well, is your explanation reasonable? Uh, do we think that it, that uh, uh, the person was otherwise doing a really good job uh, other than because uh, 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 so, so there was no basis for firing other than age or disability, let's say? And uh, uh, the court, the Supreme Court took the view that, well, have, making that decision about whether it was reasonable for you for other reasons to fire somebody uh, because they were doing a bad job of the ministry or a bad job of teaching religion, that would be too intrusive on religious institutions. You can imagine a different rule. You can imagine a rule that says a church or a religious institution has to at least say, we do have a religious objection to hiring the disabled, let's say, or to having old people with us. We're the opposite of, uh, of run by the elders. We're run by the youngers. And we, uh, uh, we therefore have a religious objection. If they have a sincere religious objection, then they, uh, they get to, to uh, uh, use those criteria. But otherwise, they don't. Uh, so you can imagine that being the rule. It may be a sensible rule, uh, but that's not the rule that the court has so far adopted. Sunu, as Eugene says, several of the justices were concerned with entanglement in a court's internal decisions in deciding who is a minister and who isn't. And in the Hosanna Tabor case, the court rooted the ministerial exception in both the free exercise and the establishment clause. It said that requiring a church to accept or retain an unwanted minister or punishing a church for failing to do so interferes with the internal governance of the church by imposing an unwanted minister. The state infringes the free exercise clause 
and the state's power to determine which individuals will minister to the faithful also violates the Establishment Clause, which prohibits government involvement in such ecclesiastical decisions. As, as some of the other justices pushed back, you could avoid this entanglement problem with a more formal, narrow test, like you have to actually have a position of uh, leadership and authority, and you have to be primarily responsible for pushing the faith. I want to understand how dramatic a result it would be if the court extends its Hosanna Tabor decision, which after all was unanimous, into this very hotly contested area of any religious employee in a school that has some sort of uh, important religious function. And uh, Sunu, do you agree that that is rooted in the free exercise and establishment clause according to the court's precedence, or would it be a dramatic expansion? So I think the question of entanglement is exactly what the justices were struggling with here. I mean, Justice Breyer said, what do, what do we write here? What is the test? And I think that the way that Justices Gorsuch and Thomas would, would deal with that is to say, to do any analysis at all about what the religious institution is saying is entangling. What, what we believe is that the Hosanna Tower factors were correct. And so you need to look at some of those ob more objective criteria, such as title. I mean, most of the discussion was about title and um, duties, but there were also these other really important factors or considerations, at least, like training that barely came up. And also, what is the institution saying about this person? How are they holding this person out to the world? How is she holding herself out to the world? Those are also major considerations because they're objective. They're also ones that have something to do with what the employee signed up for in taking this role as compared to bringing a disability claim or an age claim or a race claim, and then being told, actually, you led a prayer every day, uh, even though you taught art, and so now you're a minister and you've lost all your employment rights. And so if you have the courts dipping in to say you led an Easter play or you led three plays or you taught four lessons that were from a workbook or whatever the case is a week, now we're going to say you're on one line or the other, of this factor that everyone has sort of glommed onto, the important religious functions test. Our position is that that is just one of the pieces um, that you should look at under Hosanna Tabard. And we cannot have a system where there's a wholesale deference to religious institutions to say if any of their employees are covered by civil rights laws or other employment laws. That simply just throws to the wind all of these really hard-won employment rights. And we also have to think about who is being harmed here. These are 300,000 sort of lay teachers who are mostly women. We brought up nurses and healthcare workers. And so women, people of color, people with multiple identities that are protected under our laws will be bearing the brunt of this while religious institutions will be able to sort of get a free blank check, even if it's a sincere belief. We think all of our workers personify our faith and are messengers of our faith. Even then, this would not be a workable, practical system in balancing the equities here. Thanks for mentioning those numbers. Eugene Jeffrey Fisher for the Respondents also argued that the school's argument would strip more than 300,000 lay teachers of employment law protections, uh, including teachers who teach secular classes. As a matter of text and original understanding, what can you tell our listeners about why you believe that the free exercise clause properly understood compels this result? I understand that for entanglement reasons, you might want to craft a test that didn't have judges second guessing who's a minister and who isn't, but what can you say as a matter of original constitutional interpretation for why the framers of the First Amendment intended to carve out this broad exemption from anti-discrimination laws in the free exercise clause? So first, let me just make clear, I'm not primarily an originalist. 
some of the people who argue in favor of uh, religious institutions here are, some are not. Uh, I, I'm not sure how much original meaning has to say about this, in part because the original understanding of employment at, uh, around the, the time of the framing was that it was not some, that there was not something that the government would heavily regulate. It was regulated by chiefly by contract law. Now there had been disputes, oddly, about church employment and about whether, uh, whether specifically as to ministers, as to whether ministers uh, uh, could be appointed by the king or bishops and the like. This is, I believe, the investiture controversy back in the Middle Ages even. Um, and uh, uh, this was a very hot issue in England uh, with, uh, with the disputes between Anglicans and, uh, uh, and uh, let's say, the Church of England and uh, 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 Puritans and Catholics and such. And I do think that the framers pretty clearly understood that uh, uh, the first that, uh, that churches were entitled to select their, uh, their priests uh, or their, their ministers or rabbis or whoever else. Um, I, I don't think they had much by way of thinking about other employees because the employment relationship just wasn't regulated back then uh, the way that it is now. So that, that's my personal view. Maybe uh, or more or originalist people would have a different view, but that's my sense. I do think, though, that, uh, um, uh, the, uh, the, that there's a good functional reason for saying that when religious institutions hire people to teach religion, it's important that the government stay out of the decision about who it is uh, who'll, be, who'll be hired uh, for that. And it, it's true that that means that certain, uh, um, uh, certain employees will not be covered by employment law, just like if a woman wants to be a Catholic priest, I, I sympathize with her desire, she can't. And she loses what would otherwise be an important benefit of modern employment law, but she but that's the nature of the protection we offer to religious institutions who get to decide who it is who helps spread the faith. And the question is whether spreading the faith is limited to being a spiritual leader or also includes people who, for example, are, as I said, cantors or people who are, um, that is to say, who sing the liturgy in Judaism uh, or who run uh, uh, musical, uh, religious music programs for Catholic churches or who teach uh, religion. So that, that's, an that's an important question that the court is going to have to decide. And there are good arguments uh, uh, for various lines. I will say that looking to the title seems to me to be a mis mistake because uh, different de denominations views us to titles or different religious groups views us to titles are really quite different. Uh, so my understanding, for instance, is that in Islam, an imam is just the, a leader who doesn't need to have a formal title. He's called imam as a gesture of respect. He's kind of like the first among equals. My understanding is that Quakers also have a very egalitarian view uh, about people within the congregation. Likewise, talk about teacher, rabbi, as I understand it. One translation of that is teacher. Many rabbis are ordained, but it's not clear what the uh, constitutional significance of that should be. Uh, so that's one reason that I find the functional approach more appealing. Now, then you'd still have to figure out where the functional line is drawn. But looking to the title, you know, in some places, it's very clear because those institutions are all about sharp divisions of labor and sharp uh, distinctions between the laity and the clergy. But for other religious groups, that's just not so. Uh, Sunu, Justice Alito asked uh, a question. He said, what's the difference between an elementary school teacher who teaches everything, including religion, may not be all day because elementary school teachers teach a lot of different subjects, but even if it's only a quarter of the time, it wouldn't teaching some religion be enough to qualify for the exemption? And Justice Kagan was moved by that example too. 
If that's the line that the court adopts, that any teacher who teaches some religion or some religious values in a religious school is adopted, would that mean that a Catholic school could fire any teacher for, say, complaining about child abuse uh, in the church or for um, being married in a same-sex marriage? Essentially, would all teachers in religious schools lose all of their protections under existing anti-discrimination laws? Yes, I think that's a very possible outcome here if there isn't an actual analysis about all of the factors and Hosanna Tabor. Because title doesn't mean that the title has to say minister. But as the women here were hired, they were hired as lay teachers. They were given the lay employment benefits book. They had no reason to think that they were spiritual leaders. They taught out of a workbook, right? And if those are the kinds of teachers that we're talking about across our country, they should not be denied their employment protection rights based on that. Now, I do think the harder questions are if you have someone who teaches um, religion all day long at a high school. But even still, as the discussion showed during the argument, the question for me is, is that person teaching religion out of a workbook and you come in on on Tuesday and you teach chapter five, or is she sort of the spiritual director of the religious program at that school? I think we have to think about some of the questions that came up. And one of the phrase was, what is the primary job of this person? And some of those questions do help to think about functions. While it's not a stop clock issue, I think it's helpful analysis to see what is the role of this person as compared to the teachers here who may have done religion as one small piece of really being secular teachers. And that was their title. I thought the whole title discussion was so fascinating because the issue is not, is minister in your title? The issue is, are you being held out by this organization? Are you holding yourself out to be a spiritual leader as someone who is providing direction on religion and just sort of doing that as part of your job? you know, once, twice, three times a week for some period of class time does not seem to be aligned with either Hosanna Tabbers or sort of how this whole doctrine developed, which was to say, you get to hire and fire your house of worship's leader. That's where it started. Now it's extended to someone who's a commissioner, commissioned minister and a teacher, and now we want to extend it to maybe a full-time religion teacher, maybe a part-time religion teacher. Maybe it's going to be just for we all personify the faith. So this is a very, very slippery slope and can have really damaging consequences for workers' rights. Eugene, what about that notion of holding yourself out to be a teacher of religion? The, The respondent in this case did say, I didn't even know that I was considered a religious teacher. I thought I was just uh, signing up to teach non-religious subject. And then all of a sudden I went to the hospital for cancer and I got fired. So if entanglement is our concern, is the important religious function test, which petitioners put out the only way to do it, or could you craft some other test, which would be narrower and not cover teachers who didn't think that they were signing up to teach religion, but find themselves without uh, anti-discrimination protections? So I think we we saw a couple of different claims about uh, about holding out. If the question is holding out uh, uh, the person as teacher of religion, my understanding is that both were without questions teachers of religion, among other things. It wasn't perhaps if you had to ask them, well, what are you? And say it in three words. They might have said teacher of religion because they have other things to do. But they did teach religion. They were held out as teachers of religion. If you'd asked one of the students, Johnny, what did you 
uh, what did you study today? And he says, for religion, from whom? From my teacher who teaches me religion. So the teacher was held out as a teacher of religion. Now, what I saw, um, uh, well, sorry, the, the, the other framing, though, was held out as a spiritual leader. Now, that's a different matter. Uh, that uh, that would be deliberately a lot narrower because a lot of teachers aren't held out as spiritual leaders. That might require you to ask, well, how was this person presented? Was this person uh, 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 described as a particularly holy person, like the way, in fact, a rabbi, as I understand it, is thought to be a teacher of religion, but also in part because the rabbi is thought as a, of a spiritual leader. But that would be a very narrow definition. Uh, and maybe that's the definition that some people might prefer. I'm not sure the justices are prepared to say that you have to actually have a spiritual leadership capacity, among other things, because some religions aren't really that much into leadership, into extolling leadership. Again, my understanding is that, for example, Quakers, a lot of them would say, I, I don't want to be a spiritual leader. I'm not a, we're not a leadership type group. Uh, I'm, I'm just somebody who tries to spread my understanding the way all of us should. Um, so if the question is, is the person being held out as a teacher of religion, then that would cover pretty much anybody who teaches religion. If the question is the person held out as a spiritual leader akin to the minister or the priest, then that would be a lot narrower. And to answer your question, there are a lot of lines that the justices could draw. I think this is an area where, you know, a line has to be drawn. There are plausible explanations for various ones. There's broad consensus as to, as to some things. See the unanimous decision in Hassan Tabor. There, there may be less consensus as to others, but ultimately they'll have to draw this, uh, um, uh, 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 draw a line. And for example, Justice Kagan's position, I think, was that if somebody really is a teacher of religion, then that is something that is close enough to the minister uh, or, or the priest or the rabbi. Uh, and so that's, I think, where she seems to be inclined to at least not draw the line between those two. But then it is an interesting question. What happens about somebody who says something about religion for a minute a day and not much else? What happens about somebody who teaches it for half an hour? I will say, I think the distinction between teaching from a workbook versus otherwise, I'm not sure that, that, uh, that that's ultimately something the court will be prepared to do. Uh, to, uh, because I think uh, the court's view is religious institutions, I think the court's view would be religious institutions are entitled to either micromanage their teachers or not micromanage their teachers. A lot has to do with what you think is the most effective for a particular grade level. And you might teach from a workbook, but still imbue that with a lot of your emotion and a lot of your in, in, intellectual qualities. And to draw the distinction, well, you're a real teacher of religion. You do it with real spiritual qualities, whereas you're just pro forma. You just, you just dial it in. I don't think that's something that the court is willing to uh, elevate to a constitution distinction. Thank you for all that. Thank you for noting Justice Kagan's interesting suggestion that perhaps being a religious teacher might be the right place to draw the line. Of course, as you also note, uh, the Hosanna Tabor decision was unanimous, and she joined Justice Alito's concurrence, right. which set forth uh, uh, tests that came up a bunch of times in the oral argument, like preaching, teaching, holding yourself out, combined with the formal role of a minister in deciding who gets the ministerial exemption. Sunu, Justice Alito said, many interesting things, and, and one of them was this. He said, I would be more comfortable if we jettisoned the ministerial exemption phrase. Why isn't this a religious autonomy question? The function of teaching religion to new generations is central. 
What did you make of that suggestion? And is Justice Alito moving toward applying this religious autonomy exemption more broadly in cases outside of schools, like the cases involving uh, the Hobby Lobby case involving exemptions from anti-discrimination laws for religiously scrupulous businesses, which was not decided on free exercise grounds. But in that case, Justice Ginsburg said, we're just about to drive a wedge through anti-discrimination laws. Do you see Justice Alito going in that direction and embracing a broad notion of religious autonomy to say that religiously scrupulous businesses as well as schools and institutions uh, get this exemption? Yeah, I think that's a really important point to raise is what is the backdrop here? And we're in this moment where more and more religious institutions such as hospitals are sort of merging and affiliating and running nursing homes and sort of the the levels and numbers of people working for those sorts of organizations is only increasing. When you have the kinds of employers who are bringing these sorts of sort of defenses and you have the expansion of the employees who will be impacted by them, that is, that is extraordinarily harmful. And there, just as in the um, birth control case that came up and Justice Ginsburg said, there's no talk here about the harm to the women and their rights to get the seamless access to no-cost birth control. Just as that happened here, there was ongoing discussion about who is being harmed without any attachment to a burden on First Amendment. And that came up repeatedly because if you just look at this case on first blush and you think it involves a religious institution, you might think that they will have to make some link to some, some intrusion into their First Amendment rights. But there are already those protections. Under the statute, you can hire and fire co-religionists. You can sort of say you're not living up to what we think our teachers should be. There's many other ways that religious institutions can sort of bring up these issues if they're faced with employment discrimination claims. The question in this case is if they get a complete blank check and immunity. And so I think that sort of framing it as this sort of fight between religious institutions and civil rights is really, really harmful because there's a whole number of exemptions and other ways that religious institutions can protect themselves. Eugene, what can you tell us about the constitutional sources of this religious autonomy doctrine? If, if it's not located in the original understanding of the First Amendment, where does it come from? How broadly does it sweep? And why does it seem to be more categorical in granting complete immunity than even the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which requires a balancing of the compelling interests right. of the states with the interests of the individual? I'm just wondering where all this is coming from. Right. Uh, well, where it comes from, well, like well, most things in uh, the uh, American legal system come from is combination of precedent, uh, which is to say the judgment of past justices and the judgment of present justices. Um, and I will say absolutely this is, a, this is broader than this Religious Freedom Restoration Act protection, in part because it's also narrower. So the Religious Freedom Restoration Act applies potentially to all employers uh, or all people, whether employers or not. That's the way it was designed. But obviously, we don't have a situation where any employer can say, I refuse to hire women in leadership roles. But so long as you conclude that the Catholic Church should be free to refuse to hire women in leadership roles, as with any other religious institution, uh, then you need to have a rule that's narrower. It's limited to religious institutions, but also deeper. Uh, it, provides, uh, it provides more thorough protection than, than the, the broader apply to everybody. So then the question is, why would we think that there ought to be 
uh, some measure of independence for religious institutions from the government telling them these, you have to accept this person as a as a leader. You have to accept this person or as a teacher of your of your religion. And if you don't, we'll bankrupt you. Let's say. Uh, uh, why would there be that? There isn't that for secular institutions. Uh, why would that be so for religious institutions? And I think the answer that the court historically has given, or the courts historically have given, is that the free exercise of religion generally speaking, includes the freedom to have your own religious institutions. And one of the most important things that a religious institution can do is propagate the faith from generation to generation. And that requires a certain degree of freedom there that isn't present in the commercial context. That if you can't have free exercise of religion, if the Catholic Church is told, you have to hire women as priests. Or if a Catholic school is told, you, you have to uh, have monks teaching as well as nuns teaching if they decide that, no, our sense of the ministry, and I'm not sure if Protestant Catholics do, but if they decide our sense of the ministry is, uh, uh, of, of, of the way that schools should be taught is by nuns, let's say. Um, uh, likewise, uh, 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 synagogues. Uh, synagogues uh, uh, may choose, let's say, to have a Jewish cantor. Well, that's a religious di dis distinction. It's also a national origin distinction. Because Judaism defines Jewishness in part as, um, as a, an ethnic rule, a national origin rule. So, for example, I am not religious, but I am ethnically Jewish. I would be counted as Jewish for purposes of Judaism. They wouldn't hire me as a cantor for many reasons. Uh, but, they, but, uh, uh, but you could imagine a group saying, for example, that, my, that uh, uh, the children of a Jewish mother are Jewish, uh, even if whether or not she was religious, whereas children of a non-Jewish mother are not. And that's a national origin classification, pretty close in some respects to race classification, yet something that religious institutions are allowed to do. So that's the, the general principle. And the question is, how far does it go? Again, I'm not sure uh, uh, what Sunu would say, but, it, but I assume she would agree that when it comes to uh, the clergy, the outright clergy, they're... they're Notwithstanding what a state or the federal government may want to do for, uh, by way of anti-discrimination law, we can't protect women who want to be priests from discrimination by the Catholic Church, because that would be too much of an intrusion on the Catholic Church. Then the question is how far that goes. And historically, again, the court has, also in part because of concerns about separation of church and state, about non-entanglement, has been quite reluctant to allow uh, the government to supervise hiring and firing decisions as to certain kinds of religious employees of religious institutions. And again, you can imagine that line being drawn as to some kinds of religious teachers, as to no kinds of religious teachers, as to all kinds of religious teachers. Uh, but it's part of this process that the court has gone through of trying to figure out what free exercise of religion means. And to the extent that the establishment clause bars undue intrusion into religious institutions, when would that intrusion be undue? Thank you so much for that. Uh, we have time for one question from our audience for, for Sunu and then, and then closing arguments. Susan Rayburn asks, wouldn't you fire a religious teacher who just taught out of the book and was not living what they were teaching? That would be called a Pharisee. And just to add on to that, a school in Ohio has just fired a history teacher for, for uh, marrying a man for exercising his constitutional right to marry. And he's considering challenging this on the grounds that others who don't follow church teaching, for example, by getting divorced or, or not following church teachings about uh, abortion or contraception are not similarly fired. 
if the teacher were to lose in this case, Sunuk, might a teacher still bring a claim against a church for selective enforcement of these laws against gay people, for example, or those who have abortions, but not against other people who violate church teachings? Or would there be total immunity and no ability ever to challenge any religious schools' decisions about hiring and firing? Yeah, I think you. I think that couple of things. One is that the churches do have um, an ability to hire and fire in terms of using co-religionists, because that, those are protections that are in the statute. And the, the harder questions are not at stake here. And what's, what's dramatic about this case is that the schools could not and actually did not provide any nexus between the actions they took and their religious faith or any burden on their First Amendment. It's not as if they're saying, we believe in not you know, um, providing accommodations or not having people with disabilities who work here. They're not saying we never want to have older teachers. They're not tying any of their actions in this case to religious faith. And so I think we have harder questions for another day about if there is some link. But I think you're absolutely right that even if there is some link, there is this question of disparate enforcement. And are you just applying that rule to people of one race or one background? Or one sex. And I think you could, you know, make some headway there if you show those sorts of differences. But all of that is in the context of making sure that these employees are not in this zone, because if they're in this zone, there's absolute immunity. And so when you bring your case to court, all the religious institution has to come and say is that this person, under our theory, and if you go the route of deference, that is incredibly damaging. This person is personifying the faith, or this person is a camp counselor and sings you know, religious songs in the morning before they take the kids out for a hike. And so these people are ministers. Then they don't even get to press their claim forward. There's no day in court. There's no ability to really have any back and forth about if the employment decision was even arguably tied to any of the First Amendment rights or beliefs of the religious institution. And that's what's so troubling here. Well, it's time for closing arguments in this completely fascinating case. And Eugene, the first one is to you. Why is this case important? And why do you believe that the First Amendment's religion clauses prevent courts from adjudicating employment discrimination claims brought by an employee who carries out important religious functions. Right, so let's actually start with this example of the camp counselor. Imagine there's a camp counselor whose job isn't just to kind of teach kids how to swim, but who does sing songs, who tells Bible stories around the campfire and the like. You can imagine two understandings of how our society should function. One is religious institutions are just institutions, like for-profits, like a lot of nonprofits. They're subject to exactly the same rules uh, and, uh, you know, if, uh, if uh, anti-discrimination was one of them, if, they, if uh, um, uh, it, it, the institution discriminates based on race or sex or national origin uh, in selecting their leaders or selecting their teachers or selecting camp counselors, then that's, you know, they're part of life and they're just as controlled by, by American law as anybody else. That's one possible understanding. Another possible understanding is that the religion clauses are supposed to make religious institutions somewhat special. Not completely special. There's not a complete separate wall of separation of church and state. Uh, the police can still investigate crimes there, let's say. Um, uh, but at the same time, when people go to work for religious institutions in a, play, in a context where they are part of the spreading of the faith, uh, that is to say, where their job is to spread the faith, whether they are 
a minister or whether they're a cantor or whether they are the principal of a, a religious school or whether they're a teacher of a religious school or whether they're a camp counselor. Uh, at at this religious camp whose job is to sing the religious songs and to tell Bible stories. Um, whatever, wherever they are there, that they, they have to recognize they're in a different place, a place where religious institutions get special immunity. And why? Perhaps because we want to maintain religious institutions as a separate entity that perhaps is a separate alternate place of allegiance and of influence within society, that not everything in society is governed by the generally applicable laws, and that in particular, the, the teaching of, of religious faith uh, is something that needs to be immunized uh, under the free exercise clause, under the establishment clause. So that is part of the free exercise of religion is the freedom to choose, the freedom to choose who spreads your message to future generations, including the freedom to choose without having your reasoning second guess. That's more or less what the court said goes at least part of the way in Hassan So the court has, a, has unanimously adopted the second model in some measure. And then the question is how far that goes. How, to what extent is there this zone of, uh, of uh, uh, kind of the government, government has to stay out, even when it's trying to protect people against unfairness, the government has to stay out of religious institutions' decisions of who to, to, uh, who will spread the religious faith uh, and how how far it has to stay out. But that's the question, and that's what the justices are going to be resolving. Thanks so much for that. Sunu, the last word is to you, and uh, please tell our great viewers why this case is important and why you believe that the First Amendment's religion clauses does not prevent courts from adjudicating employment discrimination claims brought against a religious employer by an employee who carries out important religious functions. Thank you. So I think we've talked about what's really at stake here and for the you know million of healthcare workers who have been so instrumental in the middle of this global pandemic, I think the last thing we should be saying is because you might say a prayer or because you work for a religiously affiliated institution, you will now lose all of your civil rights. And just by way of example, I was a camp counselor and I was in charge of the morning songs at a religiously affiliated organization. And it was actually a Quaker camp. And that is my family background, interestingly. But I raised that example to say, when I went to the camp director and I said, oh, there's this counselor who's like massaging all of the female counselor's shoulders and it's uncomfortable, let's stop it. If she had said to me, actually, you lead the songs that have religion in them, some of them, some of them were in our secular songs, and so you don't have any rights. I think that is outrageous and cannot be what happens with our hard-fought civil rights laws. Now, if there was someone else who worked at the camp who was the religious director of the camp, who was setting the tone, and that's why I think the workbook question is, is important, because if your job is to lead the faith and to pass on the faith, I think that should be reflected somehow in your title in your training, and these factors that this Supreme Court not that long ago said were the criteria to look at. And so religious duties are about one piece of the puzzle. And so that's why the National Women's Law Center and in, in conjunction with the Leadership Conference of Civil and Human Rights and Kevin Russell, and we brought in 68 organizations who know that the rights of workers are at stake here. And we filed our brief in support of uh, Ms. Beale and her, her family that's taking the case forward, and Ms. Morrissey Baru to say that they, uh, while they may have taught religion as part of their job, 
they should not be stripped of all of their civil rights protections. And I look forward to seeing what the justices do. I think there's some really interesting questions about where the law, the, the line will be drawn, how it will be drawn, and what it will sweep in. So we look forward to the outcome. Thank you so much, Eugene Volokh and Sunu Chandri, for an absolutely fascinating discussion of this extremely important case. Dear C-SPAN and National Constitution Press Center friends, thank you so much for taking the time to educate yourself about these important cases. This is an experiment in constitutional education, and we are testing the proposition that citizens are able to listen to these constitution complicated constitutional arguments with an open mind so that you can inform yourself. If after listening to the discussion this morning, you changed your mind about the constitutional issue in the case, in other words, if you initially were inclined to rule against the uh, uh, petitioner and then decided that the Constitution uh, uh, protected the, ch the church, or if you went the other way and were inclined to rule in favor of her, but decided that uh, she in fact was immune, write to me, Rosen at constitutioncenter.org. Tell me how you reached your constitutional conclusion and why you changed your mind. Uh, the Constitution, as Justice Holmes said, is an experiment, as all of life is an experiment, and we have faith that you're able to really engage with these arguments in a rigorous way. Tomorrow's homework, it's the subpoena cases, the power of Congress and the New York District Attorney to subpoena the president. Read the briefs so that you will be fully prepared to listen actively to the oral arguments. Listen to all of them. Listen closely to all the questions. And then together we will learn in the spirit of Justice Brandeis and reason together so that we can enlighten ourselves about the meaning of the Constitution. Uh, and with that, I will once again say Eugene, Sunu, thank you so much for joining. Thanks everyone for joining and we'll see you tomorrow. Bye. Thank you. Thank you. This episode was engineered by Greg Sheckler and produced by me, Jackie McDermott. Research was provided by Robert Black and Lana Ulrich. The National Constitution Center collaborated with C-SPAN to recap all of the arguments heard this past week. You can watch the rest of those recaps on our YouTube channel or hear more on our podcasts in the coming weeks. So please join us back here next week on We the People. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jackie McDermott.